science. Science on BCFM. Oh, that's uh, scary noises coming out from our phone. <laughs> no idea why that is, but uh, there we go. That's an early uh, guest, isn't yes, it? Yes, very early. Ah, yes. That's, uh, that's John Ford is in the building, so you'll hear from uh, John later on. Uh, that was it. that was a dramatic entrance they, he yeah, made there. That's, that's the it? noise he makes it whenever he goes into any building. <laughs> it's the soundtrack of his life, <laughs> I think. Uh, and you'll be uh, John is on um, after us uh, uh, after the news at uh, just gone four o'clock today. But we are love and science, and we've got an hour of talking about science in the news, science behind the news, and we've got some starry things going on. Uh, uh, and a little bit later on, we're going to be uh, talking. Uh, to somebody from the uh, Avon Wildlife Trust all about the wildlife report, or what we, we're calling, our shorthand is the wildlife uh, report and its uh, meaning. It's uh, been delayed, and uh, we're going to find out why it's been delayed. This is a government uh, report uh, about promoting uh, nature uh, in uh, the UK, and uh, also uh, what uh, even our local uh, wild wildlife trust, Avon uh, Wildlife Trust, would like to uh, see happen and the initiatives that they're taking. But first of all, some starry things. And um, uh, NASA the, uh, and uh, the ESA uh, have, a, uh, the European Space Agency, that is, have the Hubble Space Telescope, and it's caught... Uh, an amazing image just very recently hasn't it, it certainly has yeah it's 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 a of a well it's it's an open cluster which is uh, essentially what it sounds like it's a lot of stars openly clustering together if they were if legally they were, yeah, yeah absolutely legally. yeah, yeah. It, but it, it's it's a, it's in a part of the sky do you know when it, this this story popped up i thought hang on a second i've not heard of any of these things yeah because i know the night sky yeah and i thought well what's going on here and of course it's in the southern hemisphere ah right so it's not a part of the sky that we can see uh from bristol but it is a part of the sky we can see using the Hubble Space Telescope, and it's a fascinating part of the sky. There's about 200,000 stars um, in this relatively young um, open cluster, and uh, it's, they're thought to be about four to five million years old, which in astronomical terms, in terms of the age of the universe, is, is relatively young. Yeah. And the Very thought is that there's the, the, in these clusters, an open cluster or a globular cluster, lots of the stars, uh, or all the stars pretty much, in that, in that cluster will be formed in, from the same uh, disk of dust in, 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 in the sky, in, the, in space, rather. Um, and so it's a huge disk of dust which gathers together and forms lots and lots of stars. And, so, and then, then this... Stardust starts to clump together. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And th this is quite a young one. The, the, the thought is, if more of the dust gathers together, this could well become a globular cluster. And right. a globular cluster is where the stars um, all rotate around a very massive star in the middle, sort of a, a galactic star, if you, if you like, in the middle. Not, not a very hospitable place to not, be. Not a great place to be, but absolutely stunning to look at yeah. through a telescope. Anyway, the, particularly the Hubble Space Telescope, yeah. uh, where, where this image has come from. Um, it, it, some very interesting things about this thing. It's, uh, there's a star in it called Westland One, uh, the, 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 
star cluster is called Westerland One, and the star is called Westerland One. 26 or w26 um which is one of the largest stars that we've ever discovered it's a, a red supergiant and um it's classified as a hypergiant if if it was where our sun is yeah the outside of it would be where jupiter is yeah so it's it would just yeah unimaginably vast yeah, isn't it absolutely we like to think of our sun being pretty impressive yeah, yeah that's just crazy isn't it and would it i mean do stars of that size um make it absolutely impossible for because pres- presumably any habitable quotes habitable planet is going to have to be a very long way away from it yeah I, I, do, I, is, it, do, do, do stars like this make it actually practically impossible for do, do you know i i don't think that we know the answer to that and right. the answer why we might not know is coming up in an interview we've got later in the show ah. with uh michael guillon who is the lead scientist on the trappist one discovery and the trappist one we talked about last week which is an exciting discovery made by nasa just mm-hmm. last week or released last week, uh, which has uh, the largest number of possibly, yes. possibly habitable planets. Yeah. So he's got seven, s- seven planets orbiting one star called Trappist-1, but we'll come back to that. The point is, specifically to this, is that the reason why they looked at Trappist-1 is because it's a dim star. So when we look at it from Earth, when we look at it from space telescopes, we can see the planets around it better, whereas one of these stars is so incredibly bright we wouldn't mm. be able to see, so it's hard for us to study. Everywhere we thought there wouldn't be planets, yeah. there, were, there are planets, pretty much. Yeah. So I'm... I'm hesitating to say that it's impossible for planets to be around sure. a large star. And if there is life on a planet like that, around a supermassive star, they would have to wear sunglasses all the time. They would, yeah, even at night. It would be, <laughs> even at night, it would be very, very bright. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the other piece of uh, space news which came up this week um, was from NASA's MAVEN uh, mission, which is just an amazing probe, a space probe that's gone off to Mars. It, it narrowly missed... Uh, one of the Martian moons, Phobos, this week had to speed up a little bit uh, so it didn't hit one of the moons. But it has uh, been releasing some fascinating science about how Mars lost its atmosphere. No, not its atmosphere. Yeah, its atmosphere. Yes, its atmosphere. atmosphere yeah. Yes, and I it can also see that story. Um, it's um, uh, also its uh, magnetosphere, but we don't know quite how that lost that yet. But so let's just uh, go go back over a couple of these things just quickly. Sure. So the magnetosphere, mm. we we experience our magnetosphere because mm. of the Northern Lights, yes. don't we? Uh, particles come in from outer space. They they or from from the sun. They 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 hit. The magnetosphere, they're distorted, we could say, by the magnetic field, give off energy, mm-hmm. which you see as shimmering curtains and extraordinary lights. Yeah. Um, Mars has lost its own magnetosphere. Yeah, it, it has, and that's, uh, that's key to how it's... Um, well, we don't know how it's lost it. We don't know how it's lost its magnetosphere, but because it doesn't have a magnetosphere, yeah. what we're seeing there is, is the particles having been... Um, it, it, well, exactly what you just said. Let's not go over it again. Yeah. The, but the point is that the, the, the magnetosphere protects us from the solar wind, whereas for Mars that doesn't happen. And when the solar winds or photons come from the sun or anywhere else in space and hit Mars's atmosphere, they're actually striking the red planet at about a million miles an hour, which is an incredibly fast rate and enables them to escape again. So what they do is these um, solar winds mostly protons, hit the uh, Mars's atmosphere, 
collide with the particles in the atmosphere and then can literally strip them off and take them off in space. That's a process that's still happening today because Mars hasn't completely lost its atmosphere, of course. Right. It does have one. Anyone who's seen yeah. the... Because uh, it has winds, doesn't it, and storms. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And um, so it loses about 100 grams of atmosphere every second, which over millions of years is quite a lot, but mm. over time, but it's actually quite a small amount per day sort of thing. So yeah, the, the on, thi- on a planetary scale. Yeah, quite. Yeah. If you'd gone back um, in our uh, solar system, you'd gone back in time, uh, you w- there would be a time when both Earth and Mars had uh, an atmosphere and running water on the surface. We know that. We've got the geolo- geological evidence of that. And one of the reasons Mars doesn't have it any anymore, has, doesn't have those things anymore, or we don't think, think it's got um, life on it, it might well do, um, is because it doesn't have its atmosphere, so it can't hold on to um, the various things. But the, th- the theory is that... the, the, the the atmosphere is stripped away so slowly that life on Mars could have evolved. Uh, it would have had enough time to evolve to be able to deal with less atmosphere. So life could have been on Mars for longer than we thought because mm-hmm. of the, because the atmosphere is being stripped away so slowly. Intriguing, intriguing. And as you, as you will know, Andrew has his own podcast, which is called The Cosmic Shed. And that means he gets to interview... Uh, lots of very very interesting people for that as well. Yeah, I do. And we we benefit from that greatly on the, on on this show. And you interviewed somebody to do. We were talking earlier about the new uh, planetary system that's been discovered, uh, not in our solar system, of course, anywhere near our solar system, but a, a very long way away. And uh, it's uh, known as the Trappist One system. We talked about it last week on the show, and you can download last week's show in two ways. One off of uh, this site at BCFM. Uh, radio.com uh, but also at Andrew uh, loveandscience.podbean.com yeah where you, where you can hear a version where we've uh, stripped the music out for people who just don't have time yeah. to listen to music anyway you met this rather remarkable chap called uh, Michel Guillon yeah what does he do? He is the lead scientist on the uh, discovery uh, of these exoplanets. So he spends his time looking for planets around stars, and I had the opportunity to, to have a chat with him. Uh, it, it's a fascinating discovery and a wonderful interview with a really wonderful man. I began by asking him how it was that they found those planets. What we have done is to search for planets passing in front of stars. What we measure is the brightness of the star, and when a planet passes in front, you have a drop of brightness. So this is the transit. And so we target with our project uh, the smallest stars in the solar neighborhood, because these are the only ones for which we would be able to uh, characterize in detail an Earth-sized exoplanet, especially a potentially habitable one. Because for larger stars, the signal from the planet would be too much diluted by the light of the star, and we wouldn't be able to see anything with current technology. So if you want to study a potentially habitable planet, you have really to focus on small stars, and especially these ultra-cooled stars, which are the smallest uh, kind of stars. And so we have started a prototype survey, a prototype program in 2011, uh, with our uh, robotic telescope TRAPPIST, which is located in Chile. And we have monitored something like 30 uh, stars searching for transits. And in 2015, we had the chance to see a, a, a transit signal on, on one of them. And it was TRAPPIST-1. 
we detected one planet, two planets, then we had uh, a third planet showing up. And we published this in, in uh, May 2016 in Nature. We published the discovery of the three planets. But we had a problem with the third one because we didn't know exactly its orbital period. We had only two transits. The precision was not good. And we had indication in our data of over transit of over planets. So we uh, intensified the observation of the system, first with ground-based telescopes, uh, including TRAPPIST, but over telescopes too. And at some point, we had so many transits that we could not make sense of all these signals. It was clear that we wouldn't be able to crack the system, because from the ground, you're always limited by the weather, by the day and night cycle, and so on. So we asked NASA to access the Spitzer Space Telescope for three weeks in a row. We had the data taken in a fall, so September, October, and they showed Wow, an amazing uh, collection of transits of signals of planets. There were 34 transits of planets, all of them more or less of the size of the Earth. We could really crack the system. We, we could be sure of our solutions. There were seven planets, all the seven being temperate in the sense that they are uh, far enough from the star, and the star is cold enough to make possible, at least on a fraction of the surface, liquid water, in theory. In practice, we don't know, because it really uh, depends on the atmospheric composition, the, the composition of the planet. We have no idea of this so far, but they are very interesting in terms of search for habitable conditions. These planets are well suited for detailed study of the atmosphere. Really, the first one was very exciting. Already one planet was exciting. Now we have a, a full collection of planets. Three of them are in the habitable zone, where liquid water is the most likely to, to exist. The largest time of ex excitement, I think, it's when I saw the like of Spitzer with all these transits. And there were two more planets we didn't even know about them. We had not, not detected them in the ground-based data because they were smaller. Uh, and so it made seven Earth-sized planets. It was just completely crazy. So we, it was, we were really, really excited. Yeah. We were, I was working with uh, a f two friends, which were on Skype, and we, we made a kind of celebration, a remote celebration for this, because we couldn't believe what we had in front of the eyes. Uh, it was just pure magic. So we have really a, a, a wonderful sample of planets that we will be able to study in great detail. Now, already, with the Hubble Space Telescope, Spitzer, Ground Based Telescope, but also especially with the James Webb telescope that is going to be launched in 2018, so not so far in the future. And so in the, within the next month and within the next year, we will learn much more about the system, about these planets, and this will be the first exploration of terrestrial planets outside our solar system. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. This is really happening. It is really happening. This is Love <laughs> and Science on BCFM 93.2 or bcfmradio.com. Uh, I told you just before uh, Taylor Swift came on, uh, we were going uh, to listen to uh, Sarah Moore, who's from the Avon uh, Wildlife Trust. Hi, Sarah. Are you there? 
Hi, Malcolm. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. It's uh, great to have you uh, on the show. Thanks very much for talking to us. We, we've uh, contacted you because uh, we picked up um, a story uh, about the... We're calling it, our shorthand is the Nature uh, Report, which I think uh, is a government-commissioned uh, report uh, about basically improving the state of, of nature uh, here in the, in the UK. Um, I take it that's something that you've welcomed... Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's quite an ambitious um, report that the government are writing with a kind of central aim where they're committing to ensure that we can become the first generation to leave the environment in a better state than we found it. So obviously that's quite a bold um, thing to, to be working yeah, towards. Yeah, it really is. We haven't been so good at that, have we, in the no. past? So that's a, that's a good, as you say, a good and bold ambition. Now, it's been delayed. Can We, we should make it clear that, well, as far as I know, Sarah, you're, you're not kind of uh, in some way um, uh, integrally involved with, with this report. But you know more about it than we do. What, why is it? Uh, why has it been delayed? So um, it's a report that's kind of been being looked at for a while, and it was they were aiming to get it out last summer. But obviously, and the Wildlife Trust, um, Avon Wildlife Trust, is part of the National Wildlife Trust network. So there are 47 different wildlife trusts based in local areas around the country, and but the national body is involved in working with the government on making recommendations for how we should be. Um, looking after nature to make sure that, you know, it's got a healthy future. Um, and it has been delayed, but since, uh, you know, the time frame was put on it in the beginning, we had the vote about whether we were going to leave the European Union or not. And then, and you know, that was people voted that they did want to leave the European Union. And that does unfortunately have some potential um, impacts on the laws that currently exist to protect the environment. The majority of laws um, that we adhere to here in the UK are actually set by the EU um, and they're very, they're pretty strong. Um, how, how, how many law are we talking about a handful or a or no a it's good really name? significant so when we when brexit happens we will lose um 6000 individual pieces of legislation that currently wow. exist to help protect the environment so it's really it's really huge and I, it is actually an opportunity because it gives us um you know the opportunity to think here in the uk well what do we want to do and how yeah. do we want to make sure we protect the environment but obviously there's a bit of quite a lot of new thinking that needs to go on around that so so, consequently, this 25-year um, plan for the environment has been um, delayed. And um, while, you know, we, we want them to get on with it as quickly as possible, they do, they are kind of, it's being delayed because they are thinking carefully about how we might be able to make sure that those 6,000 pieces of legislation are brought into UK law and potentially strengthened. Yeah. So there is... So, so, so there, there are good reasons, uh, really. For, de for, delaying, for delaying the report. Now, um, we, we, we asked you particularly uh, to talk on the show about this because, obviously, you, you represent uh, one of the most important uh, organisations that promote, um, we should, could say, promote nature. That sounds, that sounds a very grandiose thing, but, you know, we, we all know what we mean by that, which is a very, very good thing. Um, what would you like uh, to, to see as, a, as an organisation? You know, what, in what ways would you like us to see um, uh, nature being promoted around us? 
Well, here at Avon Wildlife Trust, we've been um, working for the last 30 years to protect local nature. So we um, look after 36 different nature reserves around the edges of um, our kind of urban centres in Avon. Um, And we also do a lot of urban wildlife um, projects as well. So um, we we have a whole programme called My Wild City where we work with um, inner city communities to help them sort of notice nature because we are the humankind we are actually suffering from a quite a disastrous disconnection from nature just now yes um it's affecting our mental health um because people don't go outside enough and it's it's well known that even just spending five minutes in nature can help to reduce stress hormones and make you just feel better yeah. um, but unfortunately our lifestyles now are more indoors they're more screen based um, you know children spend a lot of time on screens rather than romping around outdoors in the yes. woods um, and so it is a bit it, it really is um, a bit of an epidemic really of nature deficit so here at Avon Wildlife Trust we focus um, on really helping people to connect to everyday nature that's all around them immediately on their doorstep pretty much out of any window you can look and see a tree or a bit of green space it might be a bit grotty but there's something green out there and so through projects like our my wild city we work in the city with schools and we go into schools and help them to green up their playgrounds and help teachers to get kids outside and do outdoor learning we have lots of local volunteer groups who go out and look after local areas nearby them and we also work with companies um, to um, get employees out of the office um, getting their fingers dirty in the soil and working with local communities to really improve green spaces so for example we worked with Burgess Salmon we had a hundred of their staff that came out to Easton and worked with um, a very sort of concrete um, street there. All the residents got together to transform their front gardens. When I say front garden, actually, I mean just that little bit of concrete outside the front <laughs> of your house. So you might keep a wheelie bin and you might find something yeah, nasty that the neighbour's yeah. cat has left. So what we did was we helped 30 residents there get together and make um, window boxes and little ponds and even planted a few trees to make a green corridor down their street that was um, healthy for um, bees and butterflies in particular um, and so we planted lots of native wildflowers Um, and then we have a big project up in Stapleton called Feed Bristol which is um, this amazing oasis just on the edge of the M32 and right next to the metro bus development so it's kind of sandwiched in between very very urban area but it's this amazing six acre oasis of green where you can just go and and get lost in and, nature. and making a difference in the most unlikely places that that that's fabulous um i know you've got an event tomorrow haven't you where you're talking about uh these things we are yeah so we're, we're holding um a nature gathering tomorrow and um, the the kind of theme is that local well nature's in danger um and we need to all pull together to protect it so we're inviting people to come along tomorrow at 2 30 to the ss great britain it's a free event um we'll spend three hours tomorrow afternoon um Um, uh, hearing from kind of experts who are involved in uh, urban wildlife projects, involved in food growing in wildlife-friendly way, um, looking at kind of issues that might threaten nature. So uh, we're we're kind of looking at 110,000 new homes going to be built in Bristol over the next five years, and obviously that might have an impact on some of our green spaces. Um, And so we're really kind of inviting people to come together and just sort of 
start a conversation about what we might want to do locally, how we can work together locally to make sure that we're protecting our nature right here on our doorstep. And obviously, as Able Wildlife Trust, we're well um, we're well kind of positioned to be able to um, do, help people get out and do all sorts of things. Um, Absolutely. And Sarah, can you, can, you, can you give us that time and place again, please? It's 2.30 tomorrow afternoon, so that's Tuesday the 7th of March, 2.30, SS Great Britain. And you can register for free for the event online. If you type in um, Nature in Danger, then it'll come up on Google and you just go through to the Eventbrite and register. And we'd love for anyone who's got an interest in local nature and making sure it's protected to come along and join in the conversation and see how we can work together to really protect the beautiful green spaces that we have here in Avon. Sarah, thank you very much for talking to us. Sarah Moore, Avon Wildlife Trust. Thank you. Thanks, Malcolm. Okay, bye. 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 Uh, Sarah Moore from the Avon Wildlife uh, Trust. Uh, well, uh, just uh, earlier in the programme, uh, you heard uh, an interview which uh, Andrew did uh, with Michael Guillon. Uh, he is uh, the lead scientist uh, who was uh, part of the team that found that astonishing collection of uh, planets uh, going around a star called TRAPPIST-1. And uh, we just listened to the first part, yes. actually, of the interview you did with him. We're about to hear the second part. So what's this bit about, Andrew? Um, well, we, I delved a little bit deeper into um, the details about the planets and what, what we're going to find out in the future as we sort of study the planets, study them deeper with more technology, more telescopes. Uh, but I began by asking him to imagine what it would be like if you stood on the surface of one of these planets. Well, this system is really amazing because the planets are so close to each other that you would see the other planets from the surface of any of these planets like we see the moon. So you would see the continents, oceans, whatever, and not just dots of light. You would really see them, and you would see them pass in the, in, in the sky. It would be just amazing, and several of them. Yeah, amazing. Uh, just, and the sun wouldn't change its position. The star would remain in its position just because the planets are tidally locked, which means that by the, the, the tidal influence of the star, they would be trapped in a rotation which is synchronous with the orbit, just like the, the moon to the Earth. So is one, one part of the planet is facing the star for all of the planets? Yes, okay. very likely. And does that, does that have impact for possibility of life? Well, you would have, for photosynthesis, you would have a life that would develop more on the day side, but from the perspective of liquid water and habitable condition, you could have on both sides, just because you have the atmosphere that brings the heat from the day side to the night side quite efficiently. So you just would just have a face which is perfect for astronomy, because it would be always dark. Yeah. And, and another face which is always day, perfect for growing things and so on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it it must be a fun place. Yeah. Wow, that's really amazing. And how long does it would it take to get between the planets? It's only a few times the distance between Earth and the Moon, so it would take a few days. Okay. From one planet to another, you can go for like a week holiday to another another planet. Exactly. Amazing. Yeah, that would be. It's really this system is out of science fiction. I would say. It's yeah. Yeah, completely. And it, 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 it they're warmer than Earth, slightly warmer and darker, is that right? We have no idea of the surface conditions. It really depends on the atmosphere. Uh, the two innermost planets are probably not very habitable. You could have maybe some liquid water on a fraction, but for most of the surface, uh, if you have a, a good atmosphere, a dense atmosphere, it would be kind of uh, Venus-like. 
it should be very, very hot on the surface. Furthermore, we, we expect some large uh, volcanism on these two planets because they are very close to the star, so they must be uh, deformed by the tides and release energy through friction by uh, volcanism. So more like kind of super Io, I don't know if you know Io, Io the moon of Jupiter, mm -hmm. then, uh, or, or mixed between Io and Venus than the Earth, so not so great for life. The others, they could have large fraction of the surface with liquid water, and even the free in the habitable zone could be completely like Earth in the sense that you could have temperature which are similar to the one on, on the Earth. You would just have a face which is a bit cooler, then a face a bit hotter, but the difference in temperature could be something like 20 degrees uh, Celsius, so maybe 10 degrees. It really depends on the atmospheric uh, density and composition. On the other side, it could be atmosphereless rocks without any uh, uh, atmosphere, without any water, without nothing, so we don't know. What is great is that we will know eventually what they are made of and what are the surface conditions, because when we will have a very thorough characterization of the atmosphere, we will know how, how are the conditions mm. on the surface of this planet. And we have to wait for James Webb for that? Yes. Okay. And what, what can we find out now? What will we find out in the next month? We're going to measure much more precisely the masses of the planet, thanks to new observation, notably with Kepler, the Kepler telescope, and uh, Spitzer. And with the masses, as we have the radius, which is well determined, we will know the density, so we will be able to say this planet are made of rocks, or these planets are richer in ice than the Earth, and more like mega version, maxi version of Europa, the moon of Jupiter. At the end, we should be able, within one or two years, to have an estimation of the extent of the atmosphere with Hubble. We would be able to detect very extended atmosphere of hydrogen, which is very unlikely, but uh, we could be able to detect more planets also because why not eight or nine? Okay, right. <laughs> we will also learn a lot about the irradiation of the planet in terms of X-ray, in terms of UV, uh, the variation of, the, of this, uh, the, the activity of the star, and we should be able to get some theoretical constraint on, on how it impacts the, the atmosphere of the planets. But it is really when we will study the atmosphere in detail that we will go beyond the theoretical speculation and we will move towards reality. Yeah? Because theory is great, but it's often wrong when yeah. you don't have any data. Yeah. And when you get the data, then you see that, okay, my theory was completely wrong or that I missed completely some point. So at the end, it will be really with James Webb that we will get uh, uh, really a, a good view of what is happening on this planet, what are they made of, and what are the surface conditions. And if we detect, for instance, dense atmosphere, and that we are pretty sure that the, the winds from the star are strong, we should conclude that there is a magnetosphere protecting the atmosphere of the planet, because else it would be eroded very quickly. So at the end, we, we should have a very thorough understanding of this system. But it will begin with with few steps, the masses over planet, first traces of the atmosphere, and then it will accelerate with James Webb toward a complete understanding within five to ten years, and maybe the detection of biosignatures on one of these planets. Okay. 
Wow. Which could, which could be fun. Yeah, amazing. What else is hiding in the data? What are you not telling me? We, we don't have any indication. If this is what you ask, we don't have any indication of, of a moon or something like this, of, uh, of uh, another planet. We, know, we just know it's possible, but we, we don't have any uh, clear indication. We're not hiding anything uh, <laughs> of, of all the systems so far. Okay, fair enough. Um, and have you got other systems that you're going to be announcing soon? Uh, we have our project Speculos that is going to start uh, this year from Paraná. Uh, we expect to have more detections maybe this year. Or we, we have another system that is, looks interesting, but uh, we have no confirmation so far. So uh, I would say it's possible we have uh, something coming in before the end of the year. But with Speculos, it will accelerate, and we should, have, we should have many more detections from next year. Thank you so much. It's uh, been an absolute pleasure. You're welcome. It was a pleasure for me, too. Well, I can tell you enjoyed talking to him, uh, Michel uh, Guillon, uh, uh, part of, well, the, the, the lead for the people who discovered the uh, planetary system around the star TRAPPIST-1. Remind us again where it is, TRAPPIST-1. It's 40 light years away in the, um, in the constellation Aquarius. This truly is the dawning of the, the age dawning of Aquarius. The dawning of the age of Aquarius, yeah. And, and uh, who knows? I mean, this, this is going to sound terribly romantic, but we, we could actually be chatting here about this discovery, which turns out to be a future home for humanity, maybe uh, one day. Yeah, could, could quite, quite extraordinary, possibly. isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you know, I mean, we'd have to, to develop some special we technology really will. to do that. Yes, it's yeah. not something like we can uh, ask Elon Musk to figure out, <laughs> you know, next year, maybe. No, no maybe a year after. Uh, <laughs> maybe the year after. Yeah, yeah. I love the fact that he's just, they've just dropped on us this extraordinary discovery, this planetary system. Hmm. And then you say, well, are there going to be any more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, is, is this I, not enough? It, uh, so, Malcolm, the, the rest of that interview is, list, is uh, you can hear it on my podcast, The Cosmic Shed. If you listen to the rest of it, you know why I said that. Because when he was, ta when, when I asked him how it felt, because it's three months between him finding these, uh, th these planets and it being released to the rest of the world. And how does it feel when you've got that amazing piece of information and you can't talk to anyone about it? Yeah. And, and he was saying that when they made the initial announcement about how there were three stars there, three, uh, three planets there, he actually knew that there was, it was so much more than that, but he couldn't say anything because of the, um, the, the it wasn't confirmed and he didn't yeah. have All so the I'd, protocols around yeah, it. exactly. Yeah. So I just wanted to ask the question just to see if I could get out of him that there was something else there. And it suggests, I mean, I don't know, if you listen back to, the, to that interview, either on my podcast, The Cosmic Shed, or on the Love and Science uh, Cosmic Shed podcast, it sounded to me like there's another system that they're going to announce before the end of this year. And he, he underplays it slightly, but he has to, doesn't he? Yes, he does, and 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 actually, it is better not to speculate because yeah. because that that um, well, you can speculate as long as you say you're speculating. Yeah, but sure. I think with these big uh, big things like this, it's better to wait until you've got proper serious data because uh, otherwise, it sort of undermines you a bit. Yeah, no, it? absolutely. I, that's another thing that we talked about in the in in the full interview, which is on the Cosmic Shed podcast. If you look for the Cosmic Shed dot com, uh, that idea that when whenever we find an exoplanet, the media pounce on it is a second earth and it's it it isn't always that it's just that it's a planet found within the habitable zone which could possibly be an earth and we need to do a lot more study bef before we find it and yeah you know, it's just uh it, it 
that's why it's important not to shout too much, but but equally you've got to, you've got uh, to get uh, out equally there. it's it's very exciting yeah, no, and, as, and as we say maybe one day who knows what yeah. what, what, what what that system would uh, mean to us i don't think you or i are going to see that sadly but uh, uh, no well you're going to have yourself frozen probably um I, I could do i could do um I, i've got a freezer that i'm not sure that's quite <laughs> cryogenically frozen enough <laughs> whether it would work me and Walt right. disney will make it there one day well, le- there's some other uh, stories uh, in in the news. Of course, we've had we've had quite a spacey uh, day today, uh, with a bit of nature in the middle, and we're going back to uh, a nature story now. Uh, this is a, um, a strange. Uh, well, it's an interesting one, but it's a, it's a strange angle. Um, there's a th- there's a journal uh, which has revealed that wild African elephants. Who, uh, whose Latin name is Loxodonta africana, there you go, uh, sleep an average of two hours a day and regularly go nearly two days without sleep. I know how they feel. Yeah, yeah. They've got children, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. African elephants are iconic mammals of the continent, of course, and the largest land animal, and evidence suggests, this is according to the article, that larger mammals tend to sleep less. Uh, behavioural studies of elephants sleep in zoos record, record that they sleep around four hours a day and they can sleep standing up or lying down. I never thought of how size could be related to how much you sleep. No, no, no I've never um, uh, Is that why you and I sleep so well? <laughs> yes. <laughs> or so little, I guess. <laughs> so little. Um, Cats, of course, famously sleep something like 70% of their lives, oh, yeah, don't they? they? Do. Yeah, they do, yeah. They're, they're always, always sleeping. And spend the rest of it looking at you like you've done something to offend them. Yeah. I don't know why they do that. No, they always, they always look very shocked. <laughs> you are the most shocking thing they've ever seen. <laughs> and they're mildly offended. But they're never going to let on. <laughs> yeah. It's always a game of guess what's wrong with me with yeah, the cat, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, to study in more detail how, how, how elephants sleep in the wild, uh, Paul Manger from the Witwaster Strand uh, in uh, Johannesburg, South Africa, and co-authors monitored two free-roaming elephant m- matriarchs in the uh, Kobe National Park in Botswana for 35 days, and they outfitted the elephants with activity data logger implanted, a bit like a Fitbit, I suppose, in the trunk to track sleep accurately and a collar with a gyroscope to track the sleeping position. Uh, and it found that these elephants slept for an average of two hours a day, which is the shortest known sleep time of any land animal. Absolutely astonishing. Yeah, do you know what I thought was fascinating about this, apart from all that, was that the, the, the REM sleep, the rapid eye movement sleep, which is where we have the dreams, which we believe is very important in our memory and in, in organising our thoughts and, and, and our brain and, and our memories, yeah. is they have a very small amount of that and they can go for sort of three or four nights without any uh, REM sleep. But elephants have a famously good memory. So... It, are we misunderstanding how REM works? Or does it work <laughs> differently for elephants? I guess we don't know. No, we don't. I mean, the, the only other thing, I and mean, this, is, this is not related, I don't suppose, except to this, this idea of size, but apparently there is a direct relationship between how fast your heart beats and how big you are as an animal. So a little tiny dormouse... Um, its heart will beat incredibly fast. Okay. Um, we're sort of in the middle. Our heartbeat is supposed to be around about 70 beats a minute when we're walking about and doing stuff, uh, just but leisurely. Um, an elephant 
an elephant's drops to something like 40 beats a minute or something like It's quite extraordinary. Right. So the bigger you are, the slower uh, your heart beats. Well, look, we... We'd better leave it there because um, our, our, our time is uh, our time is running out. Do you know anything about dinosaur heartbeats? Sorry to no, I don't. Oh. It's not something I've specialised. I'm just in. thinking about a Diplodocus. He must have had incredibly slow. Yeah, just like boom. Yeah, boom. Yeah, yeah. Once in a while, that was Malcolm Love doing a Diplodocus. Yeah, that's heartbeat. my Diplodocus impression. I'm available for parties, comments <laughs> for children's children's uh, birthdays. Um, well. You, I'll tell you something as well. I'm all, I want, something I want to say before we go off the air. Oh, yeah. John Ford, who follows this programme. So after the news, don't turn off because John is going to be on getting yeah. Bristol home. He's such a great fan of this programme. He always yeah. gives us a puff. I thought I would just say something about him. So I oh, looked amazing. him up and I found that he's, uh, he was a film director. Oh, wow. That he's directed, uh, famous for directing westerns like Stagecoach, The Searchers, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, The Man Who Really Brought John Wayne, uh, made John Wayne uh, uh, an absolute star. I'm he did all that, and he was born uh, in uh, 1894. And, and just to look at him, you wouldn't believe it, would you? You wouldn't. He does do the old skits and hits show. going though, strong he? now. Yeah. It's brilliant. Amazing. Absolutely brilliant. Um, anyway, uh, don't forget to uh, join us again next week for another edition of uh, Love and Science. It's been fantastic having uh, your uh, company this week, of course. Uh, have yourselves a very good evening and stay tuned Science. for Getting Bristol Home after the news. Science.